Welcome at welcome back everyone to the Preventive Medicine Podcast. Obviously, it's been a bit since I've done one of these. Thank you guys so much for listening. Um, we are back with a bunch of new episodes. And in this episode, we're talking with someone who's had some experiences that the vast majority of us probably will never have and be in a position to do so. So I'm excited to get into this conversation. Let's do it right now. Overcoming saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths, we must now face a new enemy, ourselves. With the rates of diseases such as heart disease, stroke, diabetes, depression, and many others ballooning, we must find a better solution to these modern epidemics. Welcome to the Preventive Medicine Podcast. We believe in building a foundation of health by means of prevention so that you can build the life you want and find fulfillment with no barriers. Hear from experts around the country on how to take your health into your hands. Take control and build a foundation of health for the life that you want to live. And now, here's your host, Raghav Sharma. I am incredibly excited for this episode, and that's because our guest, Dr. James or Jim Sanders, has a wealth of experience, and you might not be able to find much about him on Google, but that doesn't mean he doesn't have experience. He's done a lot in the real world out there. Um, Dr. Sanders uh, graduated medical school from Rush University here in Chicago. Um, He completed his residency at the County Hospital in Minnesota. Um, within the town of St. Paul, I believe. You can correct me um, if I'm right. I think that's correct, right? Um, And then he also practiced as a family medicine physician within the Milwaukee, uh, Wisconsin area. He's also an associate professor at the Medical College of Wisconsin. But the most important stuff and the reason that I want to talk to him so much, I'm so excited for this, is because he served with Doctors Without Borders for quite some time and also helped with things around the entire world in Asia and in other parts as well. He also received the President's Award for his work that he did in the Republic of Georgia. He took a sabbatical year as a Fulbright Scholar and helped the University of Zambia develop its uh, first family medicine training program, which we'll talk a lot about. And he's worked extensively helping the poor and those without insurance. So Dr. Sanders, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. And I'm, I have to say, I'm, uh, I'm eager to share my experience so that others might gain some uh, foothold on their own careers, especially if they're young and they're starting out. Um, that's what I like to do is mentor uh, younger physicians in this way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I'm looking forward to it. But first, I want to ask you, when we first chatted and like getting this whole thing set up, you mentioned that you have like a, a show on like the radio or a, what, what, no. what kind of show was that? Well, when I was when I was a resident, um, uh, I had a cable show. It was a live uh, community access call-in show. And I would um, host uh, local physicians, you know, people that were my attendings and whatnot, uh, consultants on the various services I would rotate through. And we would talk uh, about topics of the day. And, um, you know, it was was live and it was called in. And so you don't want any dead air, especially if you're on camera, right? And so... (laughs) I'd always, I'd always have a few ringers uh, in my pocket, you know, so uh, like, you know, some buddies of mine would be watching and if things got sort of dull, they'd, they'd call in and, and, and pop a question and we'd get things rolling again. But uh, mo- most often I was so surprised, you know, people were actually watching this thing. Uh, it was, a, it was a lot of fun. It was, it was a ton of fun. Um, most, <clears throat> Most cable companies, in exchange for their monopoly with the municipalities in which they uh, they operate, they have to give uh, community access, and so they have these cable access uh, channels. 
you wonder why anybody would watch this when you can watch, you know, slick production from a major company, but uh, mm -hmm. people do. And so anybody can gain access to this. I think MATC here in Milwaukee uh, has a, a training program for folks uh, just to ramp up on some basic mm -hmm. understanding of how to work it and, and away you go. Yeah, it's sort of fun. Absolutely. Well, that sounds eerily familiar to kind of what I'm yeah. doing here with this new yeah. age kind of stuff. But one of the other things that we talked about uh, when we were kind of chatting was that global health wasn't popular back then. And you have a lot of experience with it. Well, Can you tell us a little bit about your early career? Popular? And I mean, there wasn't even a word for it. <laughs> no, really. I mean, back then it was actually called, uh, if anything, it was called international health. Mm -hmm. And uh, you, if you if you go back in the archival records of uh, the, the growth of this topical area within medicine in the United States, you'll see it it morphed into global health, I'd say probably in around the late 1990s, early aughts, and then eventually it just sort of overwhelmingly shifted in that direction. And I think that's because when we say international, by definition, you're saying international from what? Like it's, it's a very egocentric word. International yeah. for where I am now. Global, on the other hand, means more of a we're all interconnected. It's what's happening there. Absolutely. It's happening here. You know, and so I, I I agree with the shift. But you know, largely nobody knows what it is. Nobody knows what global health is or international health. You know, by definition, I guess it's anything that happens outside my immediate area. But you know, can I do global health on a Native American uh, reservation here in this country, or do I have to go to overseas? You know, can I, if I do a Native American reservation in Canada, does that count? But why not Nevada or, you know, New Mexico? Yeah. So, I mean, it's just sort of crazy the way that we sort of tried to define this thing. But mm -hmm. uh, anyway, um, uh, I started getting but into it, um, yeah, as, as a... Um, as a medical student, I stumbled into it and I got bit, right. You know, I, I got bit and, um, sick with it. And so I just love it so much, you know, it's sort of yeah. like, uh, in my bones now. Yeah. Is there a reason that you fell in love with it so much? Cause I know a lot of people going through medical school, they look for like the glam and like glam, yeah. these days, especially like surgical oh, specialties, you know especially at a time when it didn't right. exist. Oh yeah. 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 And that, I see that all the time. Uh, when I was on uh, full-time faculty at the medical college, you know, these very enthusiastic, shiny M1s would come in and they're all about global health, but yeah, they don't want to get their hands dirty. They, mm -hmm. they want to plug in, plug out. And, you know, when, it, when the rubber hits the road, they're nowhere to be seen. Right. So it's like a very, um, high attrition between what people say and eventually what they do. And I, unfortunately, I think the debt crushing nature of medical school in this country uh, doesn't allow for a lot of folks to go yeah, overseas agreed. because there's, there's no money when you're going overseas. Usually it's you're, you're, you're paying your way typically. Mm -hmm. um, and so, right. That, that, that is a real barrier and I shouldn't diminish that. Uh, but, you know, I also find that people really, you know, they want to, curated. They want an experience that's well-defined, understood, well-planned out, and, and, and actually other people have gone before them so that they have a lot of knowns about what they're about mm -hmm. to do. And I, I was never about that. I, I, I thrived on sort of the unknown. And I'll tell you what, I grew up in a very homogenous uh, suburb outside Chicago. 
you know, they were, it was just all very middle class, all very white, um, largely skewed Christian. And uh, when I got to college, I recognized, and I went to Atlanta for at Emory for my college, and I was in a big city really for the first time, and I recognized just, you know, wow, there's a lot of world out there that I don't know about, and it's really exciting, and I want to learn more about it, and I wasn't going to get it if I continued to return and live in situations from which mm -hmm. I came, you know, which was just like, you know, all about people that were similar to myself. So that's why I chose Rush, actually, um, in Chicago, because I loved the neighborhood it was in. Um, it was on the near west side. It was tightly packed in with a lot of other medical institutions, the VA, Cook County Hospital, University of Illinois Medical Center. Um, yep. It was teeming with, a, you know, this was actually a vibrant Italian community when I was there. Um, I think it's gentrified out. Out it is. It's bit. mostly college kids now. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, and and <clears throat> oh my gosh, I was just so excited about that. You know, really to get into uh, the aspect of tr cross cultural experience because I I really saw myself in as a pluralistic, full bodied physician. Okay, so I'd be doing surgery, I'd be doing medicine from cradle to grave. Uh, I wanted to care for people in this sort of huge way, all right, not just what I could get from, you know, a textbook or learn in the confines of a lecture hall, but in this huge way. I wanted to accompany them on their life journey, right? And I thought, okay, I, I'm, I'm going to have to understand them because my my prior experience in life really was didn't prepare me yeah. for all of the life experiences, which I had hoped to uh, be part of with my future patients. Well, Rush didn't provide it. It was just, um, at the time, it was all about specialty care. It was all about insured uh, patients. It was all about, um, if you're a medical student, you know, you should be seen and not heard. And you're like three pecking orders back and caregiving. Mm -hmm. And like I hinted at earlier, I'm really about getting my hands in there. Uh, I jump in both feet usually and worry about how deep the pool <laughs> is later, you know. Um, <clears throat> and so it was very frustrating for me because I was, I had this image in my head about what kind of doctor I wanted to be, and I wasn't getting any mentoring. There were no role models that I could find, you know, especially in primary care at Rush. That was a non-starter. And then secondly, in the kind of messy, you know, full embrace caring that I wanted to do as a physician. So, you know where I found that? I found that across the street at Cook County. I mean, that was amazing. It was an amazing experience. You just walk through the door and all of a sudden, you know, people are speaking a dozen different languages. Yeah, I've walked you know. through those doors myself too. Yeah. I know, I know what yeah. you're talking about. I, I haven't been there in years, but, you know, at the time I was overwhelmed with excitement and and I did every rotation and every moment I could. I, I spent at Cook County. <clears throat> and by the time I was done with my third year rotations, I was just so frustrated with what I, I saw as, uh, you know, this this molding that Rush is putting on me as a student. And I, I, I yearn for the liberation of what I found in the residents mm -hmm. and the attendings over at Cook County. So I was like, okay, you know what, if, if I want to really care for people in a cross-cultural way, uh, I've got to go out and understand what the world means to them so that, you know, I... I can identify with it. I can be empathetic with it. I can understand yeah. it. Well, I dropped out. 
I mean, it's just, it was just as simple as that. I, I just dropped out. And so, um, oh, man, back before the internet, it was, it was, it was, a, it was a completely different situation, but you know, you're answering little three line ads in the back of, you know, service periodicals mm -hmm. and you know my friend of a friend of a friend did this and you might want to give them a call and you get a phone number and you just cold call people or you know you cold write people and asking them if they have any opportunity and when, anyway i don't want to belabor this but i ended up in haiti um this is in 1988 so the hiv aids crisis was just coming unglued uh haiti was the epicenter of it for our hemisphere actually the cdc put haitians on the uh at risk list, thinking that somehow they are genetically predisposed to this. That's how that's how new it was. And so the, all these Haitian adults were dying of HIV, and they were leaving these babies behind, these children behind. And so an orphanage started up to care for these HIV orphans, um, and many of whom had HIV themselves. And then there was even a hospice next to the orphanage to care for those that were dying because the idea was that nobody should die unaccompanied. And uh, so somehow I found myself in medical director of this new hospice for dying children wow. with, with six months of pediatrics under my belt as a third year student. It was like, oh my gosh, you know, that was just, oh my that gosh, it was something. a baptism by fire. But what, <laughs> but what you learn, of course, is nobody really dies of HIV per se. They die of the opportunistic infections. And those are readily understood and curable with some very simple remedies, you know, hydration, nutrition, tuberculosis medication, um, treatment of diarrhea, you know, this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. and kids are so hardy, aren't they? I mean, they're just amazing. Uh, they turned around. Many of these kids in hospice turned around, and they began to eat and thrive and grow and, you know, bloom, blossom. And um, that was the hardest year, I think, of my life. Um, it, it really was a journey inward, and it tested me in many ways. But what it also did was it it – it forged my conviction that I wanted to be this kind of physician that I was not going to find a rush. You know, people, I, I wanted to be messy. I wanted to be involved. I wanted to be in a way that I could care for children that were dying by holding them during their last breath, if that's what the moment called for. This, this reminds me a lot of uh, Jordan Farmer, who I read his book about like two years ago. I forgot what it was titled, but he talked a lot about the TB work he did. But oh, Paul Farmer. Yeah, Paul Farmer. Sorry. Oh yeah. Uh -huh. um, this right. reminds me quite right. a bit of that. Right. Well, he was coming up at about the same time. Yeah. And so, um, although I, I certainly would never, uh, please, uh, never put myself in the same orbit as him, and I've never crossed paths with him. But yeah, he was one of my uh, er, idols early on, and uh -huh. has since been. So anyway, um, I returned to medical school. Um, for your listeners out there, I am licensed. I've, I, am, <laughs> I actually have a, I have a diploma. Uh, so yeah, I returned to medical school and I became a, you know, a much tougher consumer of my educational needs. I think I was a needle in the side of all the uh, faculty at Rush. Uh, but I got what I needed out of there. And then I went up to the county hospital in St. Paul. And in the 1980s or the late 80s, there was this huge wave of Southeast Asian immigrants, Vietnamese uh, and uh, Laotian, um, Cambodian peoples to the United States These because they're closing down the camps from the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. 
And many of them, the Hmong in particular, came to Minnesota, and a lot of those settled around St. Paul. And so I thought to myself, okay, I, I got now I've, I'm going up to St. Paul. I'm going to have to find out what these Hmong people are all about. So I, before I started, I went to Thailand, and I worked in the refugee camp that was still open. Um, and I, I got to know firsthand, you know, the lives, and you know, where these folks are coming from, what their culture was, what their native um, habits, and, you know, they're sort of like their 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 background was so that I could care for them in a more um, engaging way back in St. Paul. And that was, that was, that was, that was wonderful experience. And that's for the first time I came in contact with uh, Medicine Salt Frontier, Doctors Without Borders. Oh my gosh. And those guys were just, you know, oh, I, they, they were cool. They were cool. <laughs> and so I thought to myself, okay, I, I, I'm going to keep them in my back pocket. I, I like what I'm seeing here. And so anyway, I, I returned for residency and I don't know anybody out there, but if they're not grinded down to dust by the end of their internship, it probably wasn't a good internship. And mine certainly ground me down and I was burned out. And by the halfway through my second year, I'm like, you know what? I need to drink from the well again. I need to get back overseas and, um, and uh, refill my cup. And so I dropped out of residency. But back then, you know, you could only take a certain amount. ACGMA said, okay, well, you, can, you can take a gap of like three months. Anything more, you have to mm -hmm. go back to the beginning. And I was not going to repeat my internship. So I, uh, I dropped out for three months and went to Kenya, where I was a medical director of a clinic uh, in a squatter's settlement outside of Nairobi. And um, that is fascinating for one reason. Because it really shone the light on what an idiot I am, all right? And it, you know, you, you go into these situations, you still think, oh, my God, I am such a savior, right? I've, I'm a trained U.S. physician. I am a God on earth. I can heal anything that comes to me. These folks are still... Uh, you know they're not washing their hands mm -hmm. after they uh, they shit, and so I can do some incredible things here yeah. for you know and 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 help them with some simple remedies. I'm I'm going to be powerful and, and and potent. Well, my God, it was such a joke to go in with such a uh, hubris. And I, I hope anybody listening can maybe recognize a little of that in how many of us engage developing situations. We go in thinking we have all the answers. Well, I certainly did at that point. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm sitting on this clinic and in the morning, you know, typically there's a hundred people lined up when the gates open. Right. And, and so you're running around like crazy until about noon or two o'clock in the afternoon. And then everything's emptied out and people are into their day with the market or the kids or the rest of their chores and, and the clinic's empty. So I'd go down uh, the bottom of the hill in the afternoon to where the markets were. And there was this Creek on, uh, on which they had built their market stalls and some habitations and some businesses. And there was a slaughterhouse there. And if you've ever been next to a slaughterhouse, you know, they bring the live animals in one side and then they cut them open and they gut mm -hmm. them and they slaughter them and the meat comes out a door and the awful the intestines and all that, awful stuff come the out other another stuff, door yeah. right and into this creek and oh my god you know you got a snoot full of that and you're like oh my god how can people be down here what is, you know this is just such a um, impoverished situation look at this they're bathing in this they're they're getting their washing water from this you know and yet they're dumping the uh, the entrails of these animals and then, and then i look up at my clinic i turn around i look at that clinic on the hill i'm saying 
And then I'd look at the dirty water. I'm saying, I'm on top of the hill thinking I, I, I'm just some sort of potent physician curing all the ills of this community. But all the antibiotics in the world, all of the care in the world isn't going to mean it's symbolful if, if they're still returning to this water source. Well, that's the kind of idiot I am, right? And so at that point, I felt like, yeah, okay, wake up, open your eyes, understand what's going on here. Uh, that clinic is not helping. You're just kicking the can down the road, and you're probably causing more mischief than you even understand. Fix the water. Fix the water. Absolutely. And I right? think that's a, yeah. that's a great segue to this mm -hmm. next question that I have yeah. for you, which is kind of fixing the water is the backbone, I guess, behind preventive medicine. Because instead of right. waiting until things happen, you kind of go upstream, figure out go where, can we reduce the, where can we reduce the that's risk it. of all of these things right. happening. So with your right. wealth of experience, how and what does preventive medicine mean yeah. to you? I'm sure I have a very different definition than what well, most people have. I mean, if, if you and I do our jobs... If you and I do our jobs, we work ourselves out of a job, right? I mean, ideally, yeah. nobody would need a doctor. Nobody would need a nurse. I mean, okay, you get hit by a meteor or whatever. But, I mean, in terms of um, chronic disease, in terms of uh, infectious disease, in terms of uh, mental health, you know, a lot of it, a lot of it is preventable. And we know solutions to it, right? Um, and so if we uh, are doing our job, as physicians, we should be working ourselves out of a job so that the mm -hmm. last day of our career, we go out to our waiting room in our clinic and it's empty because we've done such a good job. But we don't do that because we don't get paid to do that. We get paid to treat sick people. So actually, you know, mm -hmm. we have reverse incentives as physicians, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and so if we were incentivized to treat people so that they didn't come back, we'd educate them. We'd make sure that the environments that they live in are healthy, that the family units are supportive, that they have the educational tools, they have the resources to buy the goods they need, right? All these things that we know go into good health, but uh, we don't. So we, um, you know, we give a lot of nice words to that, but we never give any real effort to it because we don't get reimbursed for it. And so for me, preventive health then is actually that, is just working yourself out of a job Having every patient never having to come back, uh, hard to do, impossible, yeah, to, abs impossible to do by ourselves. Of course, it's a full press effort on all fronts, housing, agriculture, environment, you know, um, uh, health, of course, education is huge. Education is huge. You know, sometimes <clears throat> we know, we know that, uh, women with very little more, you know, uh, somebody who ends school in fifth grade versus somebody who ends school in seventh grade versus somebody who ends school in ninth grade has very different outcomes for their households. Number of kids they have, what the, uh, what the household income is, whether there's cement floors or dirt floors, whether there's a tin roof or a, a you know, a, a fiberglass roof or whatever. Um, those small increments in education for girls can be extremely powerful for their children. Hmm. So when I was delivering babies a few years ago, right here in Milwaukee, and we were delivering a child, uh, say a 17-year-old, uh, who was um, impoverished. They're on Medicaid. They're mm -hmm. impoverished. Um, the chances of that child growing up impoverished were 80%. Wow. Okay. So then you say to yourself, okay, <laughs> 
The 17-year-old girl in front of me now who's pregnant and who's already poor, I've now lost this unborn baby to poverty because I can't fight an 80% statistic. Yeah. All right. How about the girl in front of me who's not pregnant, 17 and poor? Okay. Now I have a fighting chance. If I can get her to 19 and I can get her to fewer kids and maybe a more higher income so she can attract a better partner for herself with another higher income and they can garner less kids, higher household income, make better choices for themselves and their future children, that's a fighting chance, right? So you educate the children so that the next generation can escape the cycle of poverty because poverty is grinding. Poverty, you know, and not that you have to be unhealthy if you're poor, but it sure is a lot easier if you're not poor to be healthy, right? Yeah. So I I have a question on that kind of, um, you obviously have a lot of experience working with various socioeconomic classes. You've worked with the people who are all the way at the bottom of that ladder. And you probably have seen at some point people who are near the top of that ladder are doing very well for themselves. A lot of people, when it comes to these differences, obviously we know there's differences in health outcomes between those two populations, but a lot of people tend to think that it's because of those personal choices that these people are making. The 17 year old that you're talking about decided to have a child. Can you blame them for this? Is just kind of the system? Is that the case? Is it personal choice or does it come down to something else? Yeah, well, <clears throat> it's a good question. Of course, there's no <coughs> no right answer. But, um, you know, I don't want to get too meta- <laughs> philosophical <laughs> here, but, you know, do we really have free will, right? I mean... That, oh that's man, a, you weren't you weren't kidding when you said philosophy. <laughs> I mean, I mean, when I say I'm going to have a choice, uh, some people say, "Well, that choice is already predestined, right?" Uh, mm-hmm. It's a fallacy to think I'm exercising free will because that choice is already uh, foretold, and I'm just uh, sort of consciously giving birth to something which is already in the mix. Mm-hmm. Or my worldview is such that I don't even consider certain choices. Because um, they're just not within my experience versus other choices, which are. Or the fact that, you know, uh, you, me, uh, people listening to this probably were born into this idea that, well, of course I'm going to college. I mean, who doesn't? Look Mm -hmm. around. Everybody I know is going to college. I'm on this like college wave and I'm riding it to the beach. Um, So to make decisions counter to college as a child is antithetical to everything I know. And that doesn't, it doesn't even enter your head. So I don't know when people talk about, you know, making choices, is it really a conscious thing? It's like, Oh yeah, I'm going to thumb my nose at the man. I'm going to have a kid when I'm 16 (laughs) and, and show them, you know, no, I, I don't think so. I think it's, um, it's much more complicated than that, much more complicated. And, and we know that, you know, that's why these mentoring programs for inner city youth or, or poor youth uh, to try to give them a broader view as to what the possibilities are so that they can um, make choices that otherwise wouldn't occur to them, perhaps, or uh, see themselves in different ways, which ha- they hadn't been able to. We want to take a quick break to remind you that this podcast is not intended for medical advice and is for educational and informational purposes only. 
We also want to remind you of our Instagram page at PreventPod, where we share various content relating to each episode that you can share with your friends if you enjoy our episode. And lastly, don't forget to sign up for our mailing list so you know right away when an episode goes up at www.thepreventedmedicinepodcast.com. And with that, let's get back into this episode. Um, we're going to transition this a little bit going towards uh, the care within the United States. We talked a lot about already what you saw within county hospitals, within all these refugee populations and whatnot. We're going to take it to some of your experiences abroad, but still kind of relay it. Um, we talked about preventive medicine right now kind of in the United States from kind of the more higher end perspective from those with higher socioeconomic class and also lower. But typically in the higher end, as far as like what we're born into, as you were talking about, we think of it as like exercise, eating right, all of those kinds of things, getting a mental health provider, sleeping well. We talk about it like that, but on a country that's on a lower socioeconomic class in general, like um, let's say the Republic of Georgia, which you had experience with, what does preventive medicine look like there? Can you even practice preventive medicine there? What is the, what's the contrast? Oh, that, that was extremely interesting. You know, when, when the Soviet Union pulled out of uh, the Republic of Georgia, or I should say when the Republic of Georgia broke away yeah. uh, after the, uh, the Cold War ended and um, the, the satellite states of the Soviet Union uh, dissolved, um, well, they, so much of their healthcare had been subsidized from Moscow. And so <clears throat> that stopped overnight, quite literally. Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden now, uh, people that had enjoyed a pretty decent framework of a health system um, had none. And uh, the doctors all of a sudden didn't have patients. They didn't have a payment scheme. Um, The facilities in which they worked no longer were being resourced or supported. The technicians, the ancillary staff, cleaning folks, nobody was showing up. And this and that, there was no medics. And so what happened was it was a free-for-all. It was a looting going on. Physicians mm-hmm. recognized that they had to start private practice if they're going to start. So they started taking all this stuff like ultrasound machines and EKGs and IV poles and sheets and all kinds of stuff. And so now all of a sudden these facilities were, were bereft of resources and those were all now sequestered away in these private places people that had been in factories that were used to, uh, you know, be sort of like in these uh, transnational business arrangements between Russia and Georgia and other places were no longer in a job. And so uh, they were now home out of work and uh, the doctors were charging money for, they're all in the private clinics. And so people couldn't access them. They'd go to the free facilities, you know, the so-called state facilities that they always went to, but those were empty of personnel or quality people that knew what they were doing. And there was certainly no equipment there and no Mm -hmm. meds. I mean, it was just, it was just crazy. Well, into that walks, of course, the fact that the Georgians have a diet that's heavy in salt. You know, there's a lot of meat, there's a lot of uh, pickled foods. um, And They've got high blood pressure things out, stratospheric prevalence of hypertension. So you take away access, take away their meds, and all of a sudden now you uncap all these heart attacks and strokes of these uh, middle-aged, later middle-aged workers. And now you take them out of any workforce and you make them uh, um, um, disabled and uh, the state has to now start paying out 
to care for them as opposed to enjoying the taxes they were paying in. And the system is just in a negative spiral downward. Yeah, it sounds yeah, sounds terrible. Right. So they asked us to come in, and uh, me and a group of physicians from Milwaukee, and design a program around um, nurses caring for hypertension, and by proxy, then other chronic diseases. And we instituted a protocol based on hydrochlorothiazide, lisinopril, and um, I think at the time it was a tenolol, but then switched to metoprolol. It was a step program based on their blood pressure reading and whatnot. And we, for $8 a year, $8 a year, we got people to goal. Wow. Okay. So it was, it was a big success. And then we built a family medicine training program uh, through that experience of uh, nurse-led community-based uh, primary care and chronic disease. And we started retraining like a neuroradiologist in the Republic of Georgia post-independence didn't have a customer base or a patient base. I mean, nobody could afford them. There was no CAT scanners or people, you know, or, mm-hmm. or ways in which this person could function. They were driving taxis. So it's like, okay, come on back in, train as a family doctor, and then, you know, go back to work for a career that you uh, have always wanted to be, you know, a physician mm-hmm. caring for people. So we did that. And that was very interesting. And so I come back to Milwaukee and, you know, I'm in my clinic here treating all this. Oh, no, I, I was re- that's right. I was running a free clinic in Milwaukee at the time, uh, the one associated with the medical college, the Saturday free clinic. And I um, we were treating all this chronic disease and folks would come in after they ran out of their meds. Their chronic disease was uncapped, un- uncontrolled. We'd bring them in. We'd you know, try to control it. We'd put them back on their meds and say, okay, be a good person, uh, eat well, exercise, and and come back. Well, you know, coming back is not easy if you're working two or three jobs. It's a mm-hmm. Saturday and you have to wait three hours to be seen and this and that. So they'd wait until they run out of their meds and they start feeling lousy. Then they'd come back. And it was this, this yo-yo cycle and it was getting nowhere. So I started some free clinics in Milwaukee with nurses using the protocols we developed in the Republic of Georgia to treat people without insurance um, for their blood pressure and diabetes and cholesterol and smoking cessation. And we did some cancer screenings too. And that was a wild success. I mean, I, we, we showed quite convincingly that f- for very, very cheap, you can control these diseases through nurse-led protocols um, with some minimal physician oversight. Because as soon as you and I get involved, we, we start gumming things up. We're going, no, 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 no. Let's not use hydrochlorothiazide. You know, let's use chlorothaladone. Well, you know, and then all of a sudden now you're on it's potassium supplements, yeah. you know, and then all of a sudden you're on potassium supplements and you got more lab tests and whatnot. And so we do things like that as doctors because we think we're smarter than, you know, the algorithms, which are being told that we should follow. Mm-hmm. Or somehow, you know, we, we, our experience informs us in ways in which the algorithm doesn't understand. You know, that's the ego we bring to it. Anyway, we dispense with doctors, put the nurses in. Nurses are excellent at patient education, patient engagement, um, patient adherence. People love nurses. People don't necessarily like doctors. And there's a reason for that. And that's the way they're trained and what they bring to the moment. Anyway, yeah, so that's a great example of, of... taking what we've learned in the developing world and bringing it to a developed world, quote unquote, 
although there's subpopulations within both places, as you said, which are wealthy and poor. And so I, I really don't like, you know, lumping countries all in one or another, especially now. I mean, you go to any place on earth, yeah. there's opulent wealth and there's tragic poverty. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to I ask you another question, kind of comparing those two populations. You just talked about kind of the people of the Republic of Georgia and then the people of Milwaukee, kind of in the same, same sense, because they benefited essentially from the same algorithm, right? Mm -hmm. I want to ask you, obviously, poverty in other parts of the world is very different. For example, you talked about those people who are building um, like little businesses or settlements, whatever it is on top of that creek, which has... Yeah. And yeah. trails of animals. So that's one level of poverty. But then we have poverty within the, within the United States. What have you seen is the difference between those two populations? Because you've experienced both. Yeah. What are the health kind of yeah. differences there? Yeah. How do you help each of them? That's really, boy. You, <laughs> I like asking the, the hard-hitting This is going to be so philosophical. Okay. <laughs> the, 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 difference, the, the difference is expectation. Mm. The difference is expectation. And, you know, you, you talk to our older relatives. They say, oh, man, we grew up poor. Let me tell you. Let me tell you how poor we were. Right. They always talk about that, our older relatives. Yeah. <laughs> but then they also say, we didn't know we were poor because everybody else was poor. Mm -hmm. Right. We didn't, we didn't know we had it bad. This is just how everybody did it. You know? Yeah. And they, they sort of laugh. And as tough as it was, again, not to diminish the circumstances, but they didn't know how poor they were. And I think that's the, that's what was so, so, so difficult in our country, in our society, Western society, Western Europe, uh, North America, and increasingly globally because of the reaches of the internet, is this idea that, you know, consumption is to be desired and we, we all need to be, you know, what we see on the advertisements, right? And, and I love that Mick Jagger line, you know, and, uh, satisfaction about uh, he can't be a man because he doesn't smoke the same cigarettes as me, right? <laughs> uh, that kind of thing there where we're always comparing ourselves mm -hmm. to the ads and somehow we are trying to live up to those ads because they're selling us these ideals. And those are very powerful, powerful messages. And that whole thing of um, peer pressure. And I, uh, I, think, I think the poverty is so terrible in this country because um, we do know how bad it is. And we see ourselves in a grinding situation and we see how other people seemingly like us don't have the same situation. And then the poor in this country are persecuted. We, we stigmatize them. We, we say something's wrong with you. Why don't you get a job and earn a lot of money and live like me? Yeah. You know, what's wrong with you? And we just pile on the um, the uh, the causes for poverty on the very people that are suffering from it, as opposed to recognizing our own complicity as a society for propagating poverty or for allowing a, a small segment to escape poverty and to enjoy uh, the levers of the society that bring them wealth versus the other people that don't have access to those same leather, mm -hmm. le levers. Um, and so that constant in-your-face reality that people in this country face, I think, brings a level of mental stress, which then manifests itself in destructive behaviors, in destructive relationships, in destructive 
uh, adrenaline, uh, catecholamine, which causes degenerative diseases, and then the negative cycle of chronic disease. And um, it's, it's, it's nothing less than... Yeah, so would you tragedy. say that's not there in poverty, in like impoverished populations that are not within the U.S. that might not be aware yeah. of their poverty, where they're kind of more blissfully "quote well, unquote" in poverty? I, you know, I, that I, I'm not going to go there and say I know what's going on in their head or their yeah. situation. But you go to those I, the places I've been. You know, I've been to really remote places where they don't even have money. They have you try to pay somebody to help you build, say, a latrine or your. <clears throat> We built a hospital in South Sudan and <clears throat> the workers were like, no, I don't want cash. You know, cash has no meaning here. I can't, I can't use cash. Wow. I need, I need something like soap or oil or salt, you know, so I can barter wow. and, and, and this. And so that was very interesting for me. <clears throat> and in those places, uh, the mental health was completely different. And, you know, a lot of it has to do with, you know, the village structure or the, uh, the traditional lives in which uh, sustained folks, <clears throat> excuse me, but I think a lot of it also has to do with, hey, you know, um, I've, I've just known this all my life. Everybody I, around me is in a similar situation. I, I don't know otherwise, per se, uh, and I mean, sure. I know people go to the moon, and I, I, I also personally know that, you know, uh, Elon Musk exists with some sort of uh, <laughs> fantastical wealth that I can't even comprehend. But I don't necessarily feel personally that I am uh, less of a person because of those things. And I think it's the same way when I go to those uh, far-flung places and engage, po uh, you know, folks that are in grinding poverty. They don't necessarily feel, you know, diminished because of other people's experiences um, in the way that I don't feel diminished by other people's, you know, experiences. Yeah. That's, that's a really fascinating kind of concept and take on that with kind of the mental stress and the comparison that causes a lot of these oh, kind yeah. of mental anguishes, which feeds into a lot of diseases. Oh, that's, and, that's and an just, I did not expect that. For... And the suffering, you yeah. know, if, if you just, if you spend a moment with somebody who's uh, coming from one of Milwaukee's impoverished zip codes, mm -hmm. say 53206 uh, or 10 or any of those, and you and you actually just spend some time with them and say, you know, how are you doing, you know, and, and what's it like and how's your, how's your emotional health and, oh, man, people suffer. You know, they put on a good front, but people are suffering emotionally, mm -hmm. mentally, and it's not diagnosable. And that's the problem, you know, we throw everybody on Prozac or Adderall or whatever. And it's just, we, we create these own epidemics because doctors feel like we need to do something when we see something. Yeah. But just, uh, you know, journeying, recognizing, um, um, naming it, seeing the humanity, that, that's powerful stuff for folks. And, um, and, and they don't get enough of it. And I think that people suffer because they're invisible. And uh, they're told all day long that they're uh, failures. And they're told yeah. that in a million different ways, by a million different meth methods. And it's just, it's grinding. Yeah, and I saw that when I lived in Kosovo. I'll just end here on this topic. The uh, Serbians had, uh, and the Albanians had split. And they were living in this dual, divided society within Kosovo. It was in Pristina. And the Serbs were in control of the security apparatus. And so they would stop cars every 10, 20 meters 
along the road and the Kosovarian uh, men, the Albanian men driving would have to, you know, be frisked down, show their papers, be harassed, be threatened, intimidated. And um, what does that do to a population? Well, you know, and we see that on the West Bank, too, you know, the Israelis and the Palestinians. And we see that in other uh, populations where there's um, that friction of one security apparatus is intimidating and, and belittling the others. And that just, it creates, it creates a lot of un, yeah, internal strife, mental anguish. And that just comes out sideways, um, comes out sideways in a lot of ways. Absolutely. And, yeah. All right. So we've talked a lot about kind of these different populations. And I, I guess out of my own curiosity right now, um, in the U.S., I guess as far as my training goes, even for the impoverished populations, we know what healthcare looks like where they'll go to a county hospital. We have all these labs that we can run, whether or not they're paying for them, whether they're insured or not. That doesn't necessarily matter to us as physicians because someone else figures that out, especially in training. Um, so that's, we know what healthcare looks like, especially for even with impoverished people here, but in those populations that you're talking about where they don't even have like money, what does healthcare look like there? And how does that relate to like, do they prevent things? What is, what is medicine there? Well, there's medicine and that's getting back to the beginning of our talk uh, with the hubris we bring in. Um, <laughs> oh man, I'm, I'm so embarrassed by some of the stuff I did uh, as a young doctor, and hopefully I've learned a few things, and maybe anybody listening will sharpen their ears right now. But let me tell you, when you go into a situation and you say, oh my God, there's so much disease going on here, there's so much illness going on here, I'm, I'm going to do so much good, you've got it completely wrong, Okay. There's a lot of healthcare going on right there. It might not be Western doctors trained in Western medical schools. It might not even people that call themselves, you know, trained doctors. It might be, you know, uh, lay midwives delivering babies, or it might be people with a modicum of nursing in their background. It might be somebody who just thinks that they're doing well and people respect them and like an older person and uh, comes to them for advice or for traditional medicinals or whatnot. And it, it actually could be a, a traditional doctor, you know, um, grinding out leaves and and other um, natural remedies as they best know how to do. Um, so there is, there is healthcare. I mean, people are getting healthcare. Is it, is it evidence-based? Probably not. Is it healthful? It might not be, but they are seeking healthcare. And so what you have to do when you come into those situations is recognize those situations are going to exist after you leave because none of us go to those situations and stay. Yeah. We, we all leave unless we're some missionary bent and we're planting our flag and we're going to be there forever. And God love those folks, but that's not most of us. Most of us are going in and we're mm -hmm. going out. And so what we have to do is we have to recognize those native, nascent, sometimes very fragile health systems. We have to recognize them. And like a, a glowing ember, we have to breathe life onto that and try to catch a flame so that you know, we can start tending it and feeding it and start creating a fire that will be self-sustaining after we go. Okay. And sometimes that means leave, leave your diploma at home, leave your medicine at home. And you're just going in and you're going to be listening. You're going to be talking. It might be some 
just well-directed advice um, on how they might do things better after you leave. Because if you go in with a suitcase full of meds, first of all, you're treating chronic disease mostly, so those meds are going to run out. And even if you're treating acute disease, like I was doing in Kenya, they're just going to return to the same environment in which they've come, and they're going to get sick again. So you're just putting a Band-Aid on things. And sure, the person you you cure of cholera is going to be grateful. They're going to live another day and you shouldn't, you know, diminish that. That's wonderful. But on the other hand, we need to be going to the water. We need to be talking about washing hands. We need to be talking about preventing cholera because that's going to win the day. And, and so that's what I, I really want the message for your listeners to take away is be humble and recognize that you are not the gift you think you are when you go into these situations and recognize the the natural health systems that exist and try to support them so they're stronger, more resilient than uh, you found them. So that when you leave, you've left something of enduring value. Um, that's not easy for most of us. We want results. We want to come in and see something. We want to brag, you know, oh, I, I did, I saw a hundred patients a day for 30 days and I'm such a great person. The, I mean, we love that. <laughs> we love that. We're addicted to mm-hmm. that, but just, you know, leave that aside and go in and say, oh my gosh, who's doing what here and how can I be of help? How can I be your servant while I'm here for the next two weeks or next month or whatever? And you, You'll, you'll, you'll be much higher value to the local folks. Believe me. Um, that, yeah, go ahead. No, I, I, there, I, there's anything. All right. I, that is, that's very salient advice. I don't know how many people are putting themselves in situations, um, that they're going to be caring for that kind of population. Cause it's not that popular, I guess these days, at least as far as people that I know. Um, so for anyone that is, I vastly applaud you and i hope that you take this advice because this has come from someone who clearly has a lot of experience with this and we could probably talk about these kinds of stories for like a year at this point i feel like i need to help you write a book now after this episode but um you work kind of doing something completely different now we talked about this earlier where you work on the insurance side of things now is that correct right right i was uh so i i I reached full professor uh at the medical college um I don't know, about five years ago, maybe a bit more now. And um, I just um, just didn't see any more opportunities at the medical college with my name on them. And so um, I thought, oh, I thought, okay, what what's going to be the next chapter here? And so I I, I just uh, sort of thought, okay, I'll, I'll get on the other side here and I'll we have this crazy health. Well, we have a non-system in this country, right? Yeah. We don't have a health system. We have a non-system. And, and that's why I wanted to ask yeah. you about it because you have so much experience and you probably know how a lot of yeah. we can do better with insurance. So well, what, what are you right. doing right now with it? Yeah. So I, I thought, okay, so I know the clinical side. Let, let me get on the payer side and see if I can't um, improve access to care, improve quality of care for folks. Because getting back to this idea of what preventive care is, you know, health shouldn't be something that we seek out. It should be an invisible guiding hand throughout our entire life, right? So that, you know, so that... I That that line that you just said resonates with me so much. I yeah. always talk about how... Sorry, sorry to interrupt here, but 
Um, I always talk about how health isn't something that we should like chase or try to have as an end goal. We use that health as a backbone to build the rest of our lives off of, which is exactly right. what you just said. I love the way yeah. you said that. Thank you. Yeah, right, right, right. So so when we when we <clears throat> engage with just uh, you know going about our life, we should have quality health inputs, whether we recognize them or not, you know. And so much of what we do in medical medicine is inefficient and not very high quality. Um, and sometimes that's, you know, uh, measured by how many catheter related infections we get in the hospital or, um, you know, how many, <clears throat> how many folks, uh, with health disparities, you know, the difference between uh, cancer screening rates between different populations in this country and stuff like that. But, um, in the end, you know, a lot of that isn't driven by any, consumer per se, that's the system um, or the non-system. And so I thought to myself, okay, you know, I'm, I'm moving further and further upstream in my career towards these ideas of systems of care. And we didn't talk about me starting a training program in Zambia and helping ignite one in Northern Wisconsin, but we're going to need another podcast for yeah, that because there's probably a ton more stories right there. But, you know, systems of care, right? How, how we build systems to deliver this invisible guiding hand of health to folks. And so I thought, okay, I'll, I'll get on the insurance side, the payer side, because that, that drives so much of the agenda is where the money is. Absolutely. Right? And so if I could get on that side and, and bend the trend a bit more towards quality. And I mean, you know, when Obamacare came out, we were all so excited about um, <clears throat> having uh, preventive medicine being um, high, you know, reimbursed at high rates, so that the emphasis would be on keeping people healthy and away from the doctor. Um, naturally, that hasn't happened, right? I mean, the 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 forces in our system are too great uh, to they want the status quo to remain, um, and so it's been a very slow game to change uh, the way that which reimbursement is. But more and more and more. Health systems like Freighter, in which you work, and um, <clears throat> or Ascension, you know, another big player in Wisconsin, they're being held, uh, their toes are to the fire uh, on terms of how they're being reimbursed for their patient care, unless they're working more collaboratively in groups and teams to deliver high care that can be measured. And, you know, like, like mammograms or flu shots or keeping blood pressures at a certain rate, you know, if they don't meet certain target goals, they'll get paid less. And then they'll suffer financially. So the, we, the trend is bending, and not as fast as I would like. Uh, as if you know, as the, the doctor that wants to be fully embracing of people's people's life experience, right? It's not as fast as I would like, <laughs> but um, it is it is bending towards that direction. I, and hopefully, we can continue in that uh, way uh, with greater greater uh, velocity. Um, as time goes on. But anyway, that's what I, I'm sort of doing now is being part of that conversation. Sure. How I, I'm really curious about this kind of stuff because I've come to understand from interviewing so many of these guests that a lot of these changes that are more geared towards prevention come from that systems level, whether it's kind of the access to resources, the environment that people grow up in, um, their transportation between various things. I realized that a lot of that is due to systems. So kind of from your perspective now, being kind of a player within this game, does a lot of this come from like lobbying and like 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 the governmental policy type stuff, or can this happen within healthcare insurance companies? 
Yeah, well, <clears throat> it's a good question. You know, uh, healthcare is a very competitive marketplace, or the, I'm sorry, the insurance uh, side is. Mm -hmm. um, people are very sensitive to prices and to benefits, and uh, employers will be very, very savvy as to uh, where they're going to put their their money uh, as they buy their insurance products for their employees. And so, right, if you can offer, if you can find that magic formula between um, how many benefits you offer on your insurance plan versus how much risk you're taking um, at the uh, the premium you're setting, um, you'll be very popular. But you know, folks can go out of business fairly quickly if there's too much risk and they're not capitalized enough, or vice versa. You know, they can look bad by being stingy and uh, having high premiums and not giving out any benefits. So mm -hmm. there's a secret kind of sauce in there that's forever trying to be figured out, right, from one year to the next. And as the um, marketplace shifts very, very quickly, you see that in the ads all the time. Also now Amazon and yeah. and uh, and uh, uh, apparently I, heard, I saw today in social media that TikTok is getting into the healthcare industry. Yeah. You know, they, they want to be disruptors. And, uh, of course, Walgreens with their minute clinics and whatnot, they, they want to be these disruptors uh, so people can uh, be more in charge of their own health care, like, like they're in charge of their bank accounts uh, or, or their, um, their time off sheets at work. I mean, you know, um, I think, they, I th I think that that's probably a misplaced emphasis um, because while they're sure, if I got a sore throat, it's nice to pop in and get a throat swab, but you know, there's nothing that's going to replace the, uh, physician that knows you over time and knows who you are in that human sense that I spoke about earlier, but mm -hmm. just listening to somebody, knowing their story is a very powerful amulet to help them gain not only the trust in the cure that you're offering, but also, um, the cure itself, because so much is, is behaviorally driven. And if they don't believe in what you're offering and what they are doing, they're not going to change the behaviors, which largely got them in the problem so, in the first place. So based on that, it sounds like a lot of these changes need to come from more like policy and reimbursement uh, kind of ways so that uh, it guides more behavior. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. But, you know, right now it's, uh, if we keep putting it on consumer side, you know, where am I going to spend my healthcare dollars? Mm -hmm. You know, people aren't necessarily understanding that and they're going to go to the minute clinic thinking that they're being given good healthcare, but I don't think you can treat diabetes in a minute. Unless, <laughs> yeah. In, well, not only in a minute, but also with a rotating group of providers, I mean, diabetes is a very complicated disease. It, you know, behavior uh, certainly is part of it. It's multi-organ involvement mm -hmm. and uh, it has emotional toll because it's a chronic disease. And so you need somebody to help, you know, travel with you on that so that you can start turning your diabetic behavior into more healthy ways as best you can with the resources and situations you have mm -hmm. in your life. And you need somebody who can help you understand the best ways to do that. And you're not going to get that by a rotating cast of characters in a, a mini clinic or on a, you know, a flat screen, 
yeah, face to face. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I think, yeah, reimbursement and uh, the, the health model all has to be understood. Uh, and, you know, the value has to be where it's best, um, best place for the best outcomes. And I think that preventive primary care is yet to, yet to really um, be realized uh, because we're so hell-bent on specialty care and disease-based care. And, uh, well, the, the trend is turning. You know, like I said, and I, I'm glad I'm part of the conversation. It's not going fast enough, but I think it's it's moving. Absolutely. Well, the w- one thing that's moved is this episode because we're already at an hour. Um, I've, once again, we could probably talk for so long. And I have one last mm-hmm. question. Sure. I'd hate to limit you to two minutes, but that's what this question does. And that is, if you are waiting for a coffee at Starbucks or wherever you get your coffee, and then uh, someone asks you, they recognize you for your incredible work. Um, they ask you, how do I get healthy? What do you tell them in the time you're waiting for your coffee? Yeah. Um, well, yeah, it comes down to just practice. You know, we're all born healthy, right? We're, we're born with innate, beautiful health. And somewhere we go off the skids. So try to reclaim that. Keep moving. Keep moving your body. You are what you eat. Your mother told you that. And there is such truth in that. So eat only the best things you can afford, not the things that taste good necessarily, but the best things for your body. Um, Sometimes you can dress them up so they taste better, but they're not always that great piece of fat and sugar, which oftentimes is sold to us instead of healthy food. And uh, of course, um, plenty of sleep, um, good loving, uh, however you define that. Make sure you have enough love in your life to keep yourself mentally healthy and happy. Um, and yeah, you know, go moderate on everything else. There's truth in moderation. That's for sure. I absolutely. Would say well, things. that that easily fit within two minutes. Thank you so much for this episode. I absolutely, I think I'm going to email you after this and try to ask you to write a book, and then I'm going to help you with that book because there's so much <laughs> you have to talk about. Either that, or we'll do part two of this episode, just because we haven't even talked about your time in Zambia. We haven't talked about your time within the clinics in Milwaukee. Right. There's so much more to discuss. But once again, thank you so much for this episode. I hope you listeners uh, who are listening, whether you're driving or wherever it is, were able to kind of get a lot from this episode and just kind of understand how healthcare is and different parts of the world within the impoverished populations and how blessed we are to be able to listen to this podcast no matter what we're doing. So, um, Dr. Sanders, thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure.